I believe life is one big spiritual creative experience and everything that we do, whether it's start a business, write a book, fall in love, or I don't know, pull a bunch of tarot cards, has a little spiritual lesson wrapped up inside of it. I'm obsessed with trying to understand the mysteries of the world from the arcane to the mundane and unboxing as many spiritual lessons as I can. And on the 12th house, we're going to explore all of that. So let's get into it together. Okay, we are back. Welcome back to the second installment of our series, Killing the Starving Artist Archetype. Last week, we covered why we're doing this, what this archetype is, and some of the potential problems and pros and cons. Our goal of this series is to flesh out this idea of the artist archetype in our own minds and to replace the idea of selling out because it's really not what we think it is. So I think by the end of this, you're going to hopefully be inspired to make your own art and to do it however you damn please and to make some sweet, sweet money doing it. Today, we're going to get into artists who use their regular jobs to finance their art. We're going to talk about how many famous artists that you know at the beginning of their careers did day jobs. You just might not know about it. And maybe they continued to well into their careers. So we're going to go through a couple of case studies and just talk about how people fund making work they're proud of while also living comfortably, giving a real alternative to starving would be comfortable living, right? <laughs> fed, Well fed, I guess. Yeah. I feel like as I get older and older, the myth of like, oh, anyone who's worth looking up to as a creative is someone who's never sold out or like who isn't corporate or blah, blah, blah. It gets just like absolutely shattered for me because <laughs> I start to like hear the middle parts of people's stories or, oh, the the part that they kind of say as an aside. And I'm like, wait a second, that you were working at Google <laughs> when you did when you did that? That's that's so interesting. That was your day job or like you were you were consulting for some random like billionaire. And that's what helped you put that piece up or pay your artists or your dancers or your collaborators. Like, huh, okay, cool. I think it's, I don't know. I just wish the younger version of me like knew all this stuff, knew how people did it. Oh, completely. I mean, I think to be honest, one of our early conversations about this project was related to this exact piece where you know, I sort of did this backwards where I worked a full-time job for six years and started everything I still do now on the side of that, where I felt embarrassed a bit to not be struggling in my 20s. I didn't, you know, have a humongous salary, but I worked for, I had a salary, like I had health insurance and I spent my 20s in this really stable place, which most of the people I was around at the time we're not. And I always felt on the outside and some shame from the media that we discussed last time that probably made me feel uncool for doing that. And then I left the job to to not have those that stable income. And suddenly it was at a time where most of those people who were struggling started to get full-time jobs or started to make money or started to, you know, buy houses or and and I think it's all a lot to do with our mindset around these things. And I think we're going to get into that today. But 
we all are on a different timeline. We're all doing things at different levels, but I'm so grateful that I spent that time having a full-time job and figuring out a way to do both things together. And like you said, not knowing how people fund things. Like I wanted to start a magazine and someone that I knew who had a magazine, I was asking her all these questions like, how did you fund it? How did you do it? And she told me that her dad gave her some money, which I was just so grateful to know because here I was thinking I could like cobble it together with my, you know, small salary I was making. And the more we talk about this stuff, I think that's really what we wanted to do was bringing it to the surface was for your younger self who you wish knew that. And I think there's so much glorification of entrepreneurship or a singular identity. Like I'm an artist and I only make my money by being paid as an artist or as a creative or as a facilitator, or as a healer. And that's fine. <laughs> like that's that's totally fine. But I don't think it's like super realistic or super helpful for for many people. In fact, I think it's really healthy to have a day job. Like especially if you're going through burnout. I've helped a lot of people with burnout as of late in consulting. And it's crazy interesting to me that the key to, to them moving through burnout is like sometimes getting a day job that they don't really care about. And that makes them so much better at the work that they are here to do. And it's not forever. you know. It's not like you have to be a pencil pusher nine to five for the rest of your life. It's like for the next six months, is it possible that while you like build your bank account back up and like get your feet underneath underneath you and you can like stop hustling trying to get little jobs here and there and you just have some consistency in your life is it possible that would actually make you better at what you do that's actually the medicine that you need and to your point i think the media loves to tell us that like if you're good at what you do it's the only thing that you have to do and that like the ultimate is just being an artist or just being an entrepreneur or just being a creative or just being a podcaster. Wow, you've really made it. When in reality, like we're such dynamic dimensional beings, I don't really know if just doing one thing would truly make me happy or would even offer me the experimentation to find new things to discover, to make work about, like to put me in the situations where I'm like, I've got new impetus around me or um, variables, or I've got some alchemy happening around me, chemical reactions that are like asking me to look at things differently or offering me new experiences through which like, oh, wow, I've never gone through this before. Now I have to process it. I got to make some work around it. You never know where your next creative like genius vision is going to come from. Exactly. And I think something, you know, Last episode, we spoke about making sure that the first chakra needs safety, security are met. And that's one big pro of a, having a full-time job or having a day job. Mm -hmm. It will give you some resources. And the more well-resourced we are, the more clear of a channel we can be. And I think then you just have to do the mental gymnastics of uncoupling that stigma to your point of, I'm not a real insert whatever it is you're making or doing ceramicist, podcaster, author, writer, whatever. And something that really helped me with this when I was in that place, right? When I was working a full-time job, but really I wanted to have a podcast, but I don't really have a podcast. Like I remember mm -hmm. going somewhere, I felt so defeated all the time. And I was dating someone who was a freelancer. He was a photographer and he made his money that way. And I remember going somewhere with him where 
I was I was in a bad mood and I would always do this where I would just not feel comfortable. And if that was the case, I would just say when someone was like, oh, what do you do? I would just be like, oh, I, I work for a healthy snack company. I work in marketing. And I would just like leave it there. And sometimes that's fine. Like if you just don't want to talk more, you can, you know, sometimes totally you could just change the subject. That's fine. But it wasn't really the case. Like I actually did want to connect with this person. And he looked at me and he was like, and and she wrote a book and she did this and she did, and and he really kind of pulled it out of me and i and it was i felt embarrassed but i was grateful and i remember thinking like but those people like they think it's just like my silly side thing which it is but it also is real and he, like i felt like i had to explain that it's real that it's to validate it because i was funding it another way but if we can just uncouple that from our minds we wouldn't want to jump ship from this thing that's giving us so much. And that's something that when Elizabeth Gilbert talks about how she had a day job until Eat, Pray, Love, her big hit came out, her first big mm -hmm. book hit that you know was a massive, wild phenomenon. Julia Roberts played her Insane in the movie. Success. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't until that, even though she had been making money as a writer, where she left having a day job because she says she never wanted to put the pressure on the art to make her money because the second you do that, then you have to make compromises. So it's actually kind of cool if you can have your job over here that funds the other work and then you can take as many creative risks with the work as you want because you're not dependent on it. You're more free. I was just teaching a class called monetization portals, like how to create more monetization portals. And this is something that we were talking about in that class of my goal is to have as much of my day be as generative as possible. Generative just means life-giving, right? So that can be a task is inspirational or it feels pleasurable or it offers me security like fi financially or it offers me fun and joy. But I want as much of my life to be made up uh, with generative, you know, time as I possibly can. And, you know, not all day jobs are degenerative to our soul and to our spirit. In fact, like a lot are kind of like either neutral or generative because yeah, to your point, they give us some capital to fund our work and maybe even some like white space in our day to just kind of like create and dream and think where we're not hustling, hustling, hustling all day long. And I don't know. I don't think that having a day job, that's day job isn't a dirty word to me. I'm actually always impressed when people have a day job and they're working on something else because there's nothing forcing them to, to work on that other thing. You know, like they're doing it because like they're compelled to. And that is so sexy to me personally. Me too. And I, I think having experienced both and you have as well, I had this momentum that would come from the mm -hmm. day job. In addition to the money, benefits include structure, include momentum you can get from validation. And something that I realized mm -hmm. not having the cons creative constraint of my day job was when you work for yourself completely or when you're completely making your own art, there's not a clear end ever right? Where there really isn't in your, if you have a day job often either, there's always more work. Your boss will always give you more things. But 
you will get some validation and feedback quicker often where you answered all your emails for the day. You did all of your tasks that your boss was waiting on that day. You got an email saying, this is great, you know, good feedback. And then you get a little hit of dopamine, which creates a little bit of momentum to do the next task and move forward. And then what I found was like, I had a situation where I could get all of my work done pretty quickly and I was very respectful. I was always very, very respectful of the job of not biting the hand that feeds me. And I was so careful to never take time from that job and put towards mine. But I also didn't give a hundred percent, especially, you know, at the beginning it was new, but once I really got it after, you know, maybe a year in or even probably earlier on than that, I gave about 80 and I kept about 20 and I put that 20 towards my stuff. And I would make sure I did a bit of my stuff first and I would give whatever was left to the job. And that was plenty. That was all the job needed. Did you experience that? Yes. Yes. And here's the thing. If you're listening to this like episode, you probably are just like Katie, where if you gave even 40%, that is someone else's 100%. Like, don't need to feel bad about just doing the job. Like, I think that uh, straight A students, <laughs> you know, if we, we start on this path in life, right, where like we get rewarded for for extra credit, like literally extra credit gives you extra points and gets you boost your GPA and then gets you into a better school or whatever, blah, blah, blah. But like really after school, doing going above and beyond is not that useful. Like it just, especially as a creative person on, let's say, the corporate ladder, when you do a better job on the corporate ladder as you climb up it, you stop being a doer and you start being a manager. So if you are an amazing, let's say, you're an amazing designer and you go above and beyond with every design that your superiors give you, eventually they'll be like, damn, Katie, you're so good at design. We want you to lead all the designers because you're just you're, you're amazing at this. And that actually, in a way, it punishes you for being good at what you do because it pulls you away from your craft. And <laughs> I think like there's no need to give more, like, especially as a boss of people, like, of course, I'm always like pleasantly surprised when, when people go above and beyond in, in the job. But I also like my expectation is if I ask you to do something, I just want you to do what I've asked. <laughs> like, I don't need you to spend 17 more hours on it. Like I just asked for one hour. It's all good. I think that there's nothing wrong with reserving some of your creative juice or spark or impetus, or even if you don't want to think of it that way, because your creative well never really runs dry. Think of it as decision-making. We have a cap for the decision-making that we can make in a day. That's high quality decision-making. doesn't matter how smart you are. doesn't matter how disciplined you are. There's only so many decisions that we can make that are high quality. And we usually like exceed that capacity by like 10 in the morning, which means that the rest of our decisions are, are sort of subpar. And it's kind of the same thing to me. That's how I think about creativity and intuition. It's like, I only have so much every day that I can use up. I want to like use it thoughtfully. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think to your original point, it's a different job. When you work up to a level where you're managing people, you're no longer often doing the thing you wanted to do. So it becomes a different job. And then I think one experience that I've had of working and also as a freelancer too, this isn't just in a full-time scenario, but anytime you're working with and for someone else, 
where you go above and beyond and it's like, but I just, but that's not what they want. That's not what they ask for. That's not what the budget is. That's not what they need. And honestly, they might not even notice because they have a 10 billion other things that they're doing, you know? So yeah. you have to manage your energy and you, one has to decide what they're going to keep and what they're going to give and be discerning and also be respectful of doing the best they can at the job they were asked to do. And then if that job doesn't hit all their notes creatively, it's then their responsibility to get those notes hit outside of that. But then that becomes an energy management issue because I don't believe in time management. You know, time is finite, right? And But energy can be created and destroyed more easily as time, like time is, is sort of set, right? So, but we can sort of, we have the ability to try, it's very challenging, manage our energy. And therefore, that's really what I'm saying when I'm giving that, you know, 80, 20 of what you're giving and what you're keeping. And we both do consulting with creatives. And often they come to me of like, I want to leave my golden handcuffs. I want to leave my full-time job. You did it. How do I do it? How do I do it? And instead, I surprise them with being like, wait a minute. Let's, what's wrong with it? Why we, I go through exactly what I just went through here. But I learned something in those conversations that kind of threw a wrench in what we were talking about, about the 80-20 situation, because I would advise that and it wasn't working. I can think of three people at least where – I said to maybe try that. I offered that. Mm -hmm. And that was, they were unable to do that. And I, it might go back to what you were saying about the extra credit. I think it's really ingrained in us, but they were just like, I can't do that. I just, I can't do it because of the feedback I get when I give 80%. I can't do it because I'm a perfectionist. I can't do it because this, this, and this. And that's, we're not all capable maybe of doing that maybe has to be something we have to work up to. And if you do give a hundred percent at work, that means you're not going to have any more. There's no more percent. There's no more percent to put into your thing. And so you'll have to manage when you can do that or fit it in or not do it for a while and heal burnout and just like sit there and write the ideas in a notebook for when you do have the capacity because you're spent, you gave it all up. And then that's okay too. It might not happen simultaneously. It might happen after or before. Yeah. That's so interesting that like giving the people advice to just do less and then being like, no, I can't. I'd be like, mm, you won't. Mm -hmm. You can, you just won't. You know, yeah. you you have the capacity to not, but something needs to shift either mentally or in your relationship to your work. I think so many people, they get their self-worth and even their identity from their job title. And even in a negative way, like, oh, I'm just a creative director at like a whatever, at a tech company, um, when really what they want to do is be a DJ. I don't know. But still, there's some like self-concept that is tethered to this outside perspective of what you do and maybe even being able to tie up who you are in a job title when like to your story, the point of your story, you're so much more complex than just being like a person who does marketing for a snack company. You, you do way more than that. That's so denigrating to like you as a creative, prolific person. And I think people sometimes want like on the, on the surface, they're like, I don't want these golden handcuffs anymore, but really they're not quite ready to move past being able to define themselves 
in a way that's like socially acceptable, especially like creatively socially acceptable. If you're in marketing, like you're allowed to be creative and you get paid to do it. And it's not some quote unquote silly thing that you do or a flighty thing or whatever. It's um, you're making money for other people. It's a good way, quote unquote, to use your creativity. Not to always make it back to systems, but so much of our energy really at our jobs is not really creative energy. It's more managing relationships with other people. And it's managing like menial menial tasks that probably could be made more efficient. And if you just took, I don't know, 20% of the tasks that you do on a day-to-day basis and you made them more efficient, which a lot of the time means, and I have such a hard time with this, but a lot of the time it means unclenching your ego and saying like, okay, actually a lot of people can do this job. It's not just me. How could I make it a little bit more streamlined? Hire someone to help me do it or automate it or whatever. It kind of is embarrassing because you're like, wow, a lot of my job, like I could make a lot easier and I'm, I'm putting a lot of drama into it, like how I spend my day to day. But really there's like so much, we can find so much space in our quote unquote day jobs. And sometimes, you know, there's a, there's a limit on how much space we can find depending on what we're doing. For some people, they're going to be able to find space working at a tech job where they are in meetings all day long. Other people might find more space folding yoga pants at Lululemon. And like neither is right or wrong. And neither takes away from you being a creative. Exactly. And you have to discern what works for you in different periods. It might it might shift in not only person to person, but in one person over time. It has for me many times and and probably will continue to. And mm-hmm. so I think regard once you make that choice, this becomes a question of of how can you manage your energy to make sure that your notes get hit creatively. And I remember around the time that Elizabeth Gilbert's book, Big Magic, came out, which was like such a that was such a sigh of relief when I was working Bible. at Kind. <laughs> That's the healthy snack yeah. company. Um where I really just felt like I got to get out of here as quick as I can because I want to be a real whatever. And as soon as I heard her say that, I was like, I'm all set. And similarly, yeah. Brene Brown, she did a, a podcast with her to promote the book. And she was saying that making work, making creative work, whatever it is, getting those notes hit creatively isn't just for fun. Like she had this really dire air about her and she said – I have to do it to survive. Like I'm more pleasant to be around. I'm better at being myself if I am not just consuming, but I'm also creating. And there's this line where she said she never thought she was creative until later in life. And she said, I don't have time for ART. I have a J-O-B. And when I heard her say that, I was just like, that's how my mom is. You know, my mom was just like, oh, I don't have a creative bone in my body. I'm not so cool. Mm. You do that. Like there was no talk. I didn't know any artists and she worked very hard in a corporate setting. So I just really thought it was like that or rent. You know what I mean? Like I really didn't see a between and there's so much between. And we're going to go over now some ways to both earn and create simultaneously and some case studies of people who do that really well. But I want to just pause to to talk to you or ask you, like, what has your experience of this been of both managing doing something to make money as well as building holisticism or making 
writing, dancing, like doing two things at once and vacillating between the two and pivoting of that pivot can be challenging and taking care of yourself within that and not burning out. So how has that played out for you? Mm. I mean, when I started Holisticism, I was working in tech and then I was freelancing and I freelanced for a long time, consulted, I guess, while I was getting Holisticism off the ground. And my sort of like breaking point was when I didn't have, when I knew I couldn't just give 20% of my brain to Holisticism, where it was like all of my waking hours pretty much had to be focused on this thing. Like I literally couldn't focus on anything else. That was when I was like, okay, I've got to quit my other stuff and like, or let these jobs go and then move forward into holisticism. And holisticism has been this like really interesting sort of shape shifting vehicle because it definitely first started as just a creative output. I've said this before, but I really thought it was going to die a swift death after like six months. I was like, I'll write this newsletter like in 2017, 2018, I can't remember every week. And like, I'll probably give up on it within six months because like no one will read it. And that didn't happen. And I was surprised that it didn't happen. And there was no way to make money off of it. I didn't see any way of making money around it. I didn't think of it as a money-making venture. And when it started to take up all my time, I realized, oh, well, this has to like start to make me some money if I want to keep putting this amount of effort into it. So then it kind of shifted from this just creative expression a wayfinding expression to, oh, now this is a business. This has to like at least pay for itself and be able to support me in some small way until it takes up less of my time, like one or the other, right? Either has to take up less time or it has to be able to support me so I can focus on it and it alone. Then I, you know, figured out a way to get it to make money and support me. And then it started to grow and I was like, whoa, now it's getting bigger than me. And then I got to hire people, which was amazing. And it still kind of was this create a vessel because I was still figuring my way out around it and what I was doing in the world. And and honestly, a lot of the time just making things that I wanted to make and being like, does anyone want this thing? I had a fun time making it or I'm processing this and do you want to go through it with me? And at some point, you know, holisticism became this entity in and of itself that, yeah, I still have like a lot of creative um, play inside of it in smaller ways, but it began to be a thing that could fund other creative endeavors, like trying to start something like good for you, which really just came from me and Wallace being like, we want to talk about this and like, see what happens or events, event opportunities of like, what would it be like if we created a container? Like, I don't know. I don't know if it's going to make any money, but let's see what happens. Like, what can we learn from this to now all these other projects that Really, holisticism gives me like the stability to branch off and make other projects that people don't ever hear about that are just for me, that are self-expression and still part of what like even this this exploration, like, oh, it's it's scratching a creative itch for me that's uncomfortable because we've never done it. I've never done anything like this before, but I'm getting so much information. Like I'm it all just feels like research. Like, I don't know life just feels like research. I feel like that's when I'm like the most in flow, when I'm just approaching things like, hmm, what will happen? And what can I learn from this? Like there's no need for it to be quote unquote successful. It's just like an experiment. Totally. Yes. And it's been so cool to witness holisticism's growth as a friend and as a fan. That's so cool. So in a way, and and I loved what you said of like approaching life as 
research and approaching it as always learning from something. I mean, and I relate, like that's the best use of me as well. And that might be our projectorness. That might be, you know, some of our similarities. But I think that's something that everyone, if you can look at things that way and in a way you're using holisticism as somewhat of a day job, right? Where you are able to use it to fund totally whatever creative project you want to do and you're following what feels exciting to you. And I say this quote all the time, but and I think I had it in next week's episode, but David Bowie always said his work suffered when he was considering the audience and trying to perform for them. But when he was very selfish about it and did what he wanted to do, that was when the work was always strongest. And I think that's the case with you, you know, like you're following what seems interesting to you and people come along and same with me and my way of doing that. And I think that that is really important. And then it becomes, okay, well, I do have to exist in capitalism. So then it's like fix it in post. Then you go back and are like, okay, well, can I make money doing this? Maybe I have to scrap it. It is really a fun experiment, but I actually can't fund that. Or I really want to keep doing it, so I'm going to have to figure out how to fund it. And that discernment comes in. But the good news is you're in very good company. And I'm going to hopefully delight you, Michelle, with a list that we have prepared, <laughs> the, our research team here at Holisticism. I can't <laughs> wait to go through the list. The research team being you and I. So <laughs> research has given us several people that we know, we love, and I'm just going to list off a couple of them, but know that I've got 45 people on this list, which we do not have to get in. We do not, unfortunately, have the time to get into all of them. But some of the hits are that, of course, Andy Warhol, that was a big example that Michelle gave from the top thinking about this. Of course, he had a successful career as a commercial illustrator before becoming a leading figure in the pop art movement. T.S. Eliot worked at a bank while writing some of the most famous poems and works that we know. Charles Bukowski had various jobs, including a post office worker and a warehouse laborer before you know, writing novels and poetry. Gosh, there are so many. Keith Haring worked in a gallery and did several sort of jobs prior to, you know, the art that we know him for. Frida Kahlo, what a lot of artists, I, a big pattern I saw, a lot of them taught, a lot of teaching. She was a school teacher. Mm -hmm. Philip Glass worked as a plumber and a taxi driver before, you know, becoming this significant figure in classical music. J.K. Rowling, I think many of us have heard, she wrote Harry Potter on napkins. She was a single mother and, and she worked as a secretary, a billing secretary. Kurt Vonnegut worked in public relations and, and later as a car salesman while he started his writing career. Kafka worked as an insurance officer while writing some of his most famous works. One of my favorites, Chris Krause, she held several, several jobs, but, you know, worked as a waitress and, and a dancer and a typist and a secretary in a law firm and has real estate investments still. And gosh, there are just so many. I could go on and on and on. Sometimes they're related. Sometimes they're not. I love that Madonna worked at Dunkin' Donuts and a waitress, you know, before she became this global icon. Stephen King was a high school teacher. Joni Mitchell worked as a cashier in a coffee house before her music career took off. 
if you look at this whole list, you can see patterns of the people who are like, to your earlier example, Michelle, like folding clothes at Lululemon, it could be working at a coffee shop. I know so many very, very successful musicians who people have definitely heard of and listened to their music who currently right now work at places that I know around town. And I think that's so cool. And I have a really good friend actually, who's a bassist and a touring musician who has a full-time day job that is an internet marketing job that she does from the tour bus. Wow. You know, like there are so many people living these double lives and you have to decide, like, do you want to do something where, like what I'm doing now, where I work at a grocery store a couple days a week and I do about 10 million other sort of freelance gigs, or do you want to have a more stable first chakra where you don't have to be as volatile, where you're getting your safety and security met, and then you have to create the energy and time to work on the other things. And that's that's a real bit that you have to discern. I love hearing about artists who like literally just have day jobs while making their thing. You know, like Frank Stella is an incredible modernist painter and he used to just paint houses. Like not just, but he painted houses. And while he was making these incredible works and I think there's such a like gorgeous fantasy of being a professional creator who walks into their studio and that's all they have to do and worry about all day long and they don't need to worry about marketing themselves or promoting their work. I mean, I talk to so many people who are like, I just don't want to do the marketing. I don't want to like self-promo. I want an agent who will do it for me. And the truth is like, okay, <laughs> but there aren't that many people where that is the case and not to be like a downer about it, but like, I don't know. Isn't that kind of cool? Like, isn't it kind of cool that you get to stand up for your work and like advocate for it and talk about it and be about it? Like you're not just some performing monkey that other people are controlling. You have some sovereignty when it comes to this game and creating your work and telling people about it, like introducing it to people. And I think it's also just the idea of being a sellout just to circle back on our first episode you might not view someone who's a house painter and a painter by night, you know, modernist painter at night as a sellout, but you might view someone who works at an ad agency (laughs) or who has a marketing job as someone who is a sellout, who's, uh, you know, promoting vaping, (laughs) writing commercials for vaping by day. And um, I don't know, writing their poetry at night. And I just think like, gosh, so many jobs Give us this opportunity to like learn some skill or be in rooms that we would never have access to if we were just representing ourselves as creatives. Like being at an ad agency, there are some really shitty things that you have to endure, but there's a lot of really interesting stuff that you get to experiment with and that you get to learn just by like being in the room, just through osmosis, by seeing it happen. And it might not directly feel like it impacts your work or it's important to your work. You don't necessarily feel like, oh, I've got to do an apprenticeship at this ad agency in order to be um, a renowned poet. But undoubtedly, if you can figure it out, it'll propel your work forward. Like It can only help you. I think if you look at it as here's a laboratory or playground for me to learn some shit that I never would fucking learn and that I don't have the money to learn how to do, but I'm basically getting paid to like experiment with other people's stuff. So let me see what works for them and then just apply that on my own for free. And I think what you're really saying is a reframe, right? It's reframing this 
way of, it's basically the opposite of what I was doing when I introduced myself from my full-time job. When you have more of these side gigs, you can lead with, I'm a musician and no one's going to ask exactly how you make that work or your money. Like that's, that's private and you, it's a, it's a self mythology, Mm -hmm. right? But I think it's good to bring some of these things to the surface. And then if you do make your money from a full-time job that people might have this stigma of, well, then you're not a real because you do like that mostly is in our heads. And I have a case study of that I want to share with you about someone who reframed this really, really well about how to not only make the day job a means to an end, but make it a learning experience, making it free grad school, making it a motivator, making it something that can give you momentum. But before I give you that case study, as you were talking, I have to just share something. I have to tell you about myself for a second as our case study because I'll say this, and I'm not proud of this, but one of my biggest fears when I took the job working at Kind, I was already doing all these things on the side, was that I wouldn't do them, that I would stop my blog at the time, that I would stop teaching yoga, which was another thing I was doing, that I wouldn't do any of these ideas that I had. And funnily enough, as soon as I started working at that job, I made all the – I was the most prolific – if we're talking about being prolific people, I'm not one, but I was That's the most true. I've been in my life. I've, I achieved the most success during those years. I did a full book tour. I wrote a book. I did – I've started a podcast. I started another – I did all of that while having a full-time job. And in the few years since that, I have done so little <laughs> Comparatively. Okay, that's not true. But okay, adding comparatively comparatively in as a qualifier, I think is important. But yes, you were like incredibly prolific at that time in your life. Part of it was just I'm figuring out the next thing. But also I just had this momentum that I was like, okay, I was also kind of burning out, you know. So I think what I'm doing now is probably better. But I just moved really quickly and I didn't have much of a social life for a lot of those years. I was wor- I was working two jobs and so that was challenging. And so I've had to kind of work out some of those hiccups since because I didn't manage my energy well and I my quality of life wasn't very high, which we're going to talk about next time because I think that's really important. Like you have to one of my favorite comedians says you have to live a life worth commenting on. Like if you don't have anything inspiring you to make art, like you have to be out and living. And I've, I've really done that well in these last years yeah. since the job. But that is something that I just want to say of like, if you're worried about not making the thing, it actually propelled me to do it more because it was kind of, I was not an anger, but it was like, okay, if I'm doing this, I have to do my stuff because I know I won't be okay without it. And it pushed me in a way that was really useful outside of just the stability it gave Mm -hmm. me. Yeah. It's like, I can't just be marketing girl. Like I got to have some other stuff that defines me. It reminds me of sometimes when we go through a breakup, we're like, wait a second. I realized that I've spent a lot of time and energy on just this relationship and we take on a lot of new hobbies or we start a business or we start a podcast, you know, as a response of like, who am I? A, a, fi- a wayfinding of our own, you know, of who we are. I think that's cool. I mean, not everyone is going to have that same response to a, a day job, but I love that that was yours because it is so, like, it's surprising in a one in a beautiful way that it, it made you 
I don't know, get out of bed and like do your shit. Like you couldn't waste time. You couldn't um, let that be the thing that held you back. Yeah. And I think when I've shared that with people, it, it makes them see a lot of people. I was sort of not ashamed, but I didn't tell people often. Like sometimes I would do that little self-deprecating thing. I'd be like, I work in marketing if I just didn't want to. But often if I was feeling good, I'd be like, oh, you know, I, I do this and I do this and I do this. And I wouldn't just wouldn't bring up the other thing, you know? So you can decide. It's all self-mythology. Like you can decide what you want to if you want, you can say when someone asks you what you do, which I have, we could do a whole nother episode on that question. But when you are making up your answer, you can decide what you want to make up that day and you can lead with whatever's most exciting to you. So I hope that's, that's motivating and useful to people. And to your point, it's all about reframing how you look at the day job. Yeah. I think it's important to hear all types of stories about how people find their creative way and also that it ebbs and flows, that there's not one right way forever, right? Like if you had a day job now, to your point, you might feel really burnt out. And again, coming back to the the whole thesis of this series that we're diving in on and trying to excavate for ourselves, like how do we create the environment to be the most prolific versions of ourselves possible? Because only through that or through that, we find ourselves and like we push into all of our potential. We find our edges. We find who we are and our space in the world. And I don't know. I think that's that's part of the point. So to land this plane, we have two more episodes left for one little sneak peek. Katie teased it of a case study of like an incredible artist that we both are obsessed with who definitely does things differently when it comes to being prolific, having a day job and that sacred reframe about how you spend your days and how you make your money and how you make your art. And if you can guess who it is, comment it on our most recent Holisticism Instagram post, who you think the artist might be. And whoever gets it will win something. TBD. Ooh, (laughs) so excited. All right, we'll see you guys next week. Bye. The 12th House is produced by me, Katie Dalebow, with theme music by Nathan McKay and edited by the incredible Softer Sound Studio, who you can find more information about in our show notes. 